Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 10, the book of Romans, chapters 3 and 4. You know, I'm not sure that more beautiful, soaring, hope-inspiring words have been written in the Bible than what we read in Romans chapter 3, verse 24. There it says, By God's grace without earning it, all are granted the status of being considered righteous before Him through the act redeeming us from our enslavement to sin that was accomplished by the Messiah, Yeshua. Now, while this is stated in about half as many words in most English Bible versions, versions, the, the meaning is still the same. It is that salvation and our release from the power of sin is a free gift from God that cannot be earned, it cannot be merited by our own good works, nor can it be denied by our lack of good works. Rather, it was accomplished on our behalf by the good works of Jesus Christ, Yeshua HaMashiach. Specifically, by Him being so perfectly faithful that He went to the cross as our atonement and as our Passover lamb. Now since this is indeed the case, then why does Paul spend so much time talking about and teaching about the law? It can be reduced to this admittedly over-simplistic, but nevertheless true principle. While the law and the gospel of Christ are organically connected, they serve two critically important but entirely different purposes. The law and the gospel are not competitors. They are teammates. You know, for human or animal life to exist... We must all have as basic needs air, water, and food. These three necessities for physical life are critically important and organically connected, but they are each for entirely different purposes. Nobody can tell us to choose one or even two out of the three as the most important. Any one of the three that's taken away from us for very long means our physical death. It's the same with the law and with the gospel of Christ. For centuries, the institutional church has told us to choose one of the two. Obviously with the intent that we choose the gospel. God gave us both because we need both. So Paul is attempting to explain the differences between the law and the gospel and what the purposes for each are and just as important are not. And that we must not confuse the one for the other. We must never forget that both the law and the gospel were given by God to Israel. To Israel. It is only later that Christ told his disciples that the gospel was to be taken to the Gentile world. This is something that actually confused and angered most Jews of Paul's day. And much of what we've been reading is Paul explaining himself for bringing the gospel to Gentiles. And in doing so, establishing some of the basic principles of our Judeo-Christian faith. So, let's take up Romans chapter 3 at verse 
24. We're going to read chapter 3 from verses 24 to the end. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, we'll be on page 1405. 1405. We're going to start chapter 3 of Romans, verse 24. By God's grace without earning it, all are granted the status of being considered righteous before Him through the act redeeming us from our enslavement to sin that was accomplished by the Messiah, Yeshua. God put Yeshua forward as the kapara for sin through his faithfulness and respect to his bloody sacrificial death. This vindicated God's righteousness because in his forbearance he had passed over with neither punishment nor remission the sins that people had committed in the past. And it vindicates his righteousness in the present age by showing that he is righteous himself and is also the one who makes people righteous on the ground of Yeshua's faithfulness. So what room is left for boasting? None at all. What kind of Torah excludes one? One that has to do with legalistic observance of rules? No. Rather a Torah that has to do with trusting. Therefore we hold the view that a person comes to be considered righteous by God on the ground of trusting, which has nothing to do with legalistic observances of Torah commands. Or is the God of is, is God the God of the Jews only? Isn't he also the God of the Gentiles? Yes, indeed he is the God of the Gentiles because as you will admit, God is one. Therefore he will consider righteous the circumcised on the ground of trusting and the uncircumcised through that same trusting. Does it follow that we abolish Torah by this trusting? Heaven forbid. On the contrary, we confirm Torah. <clears throat> Essentially, in verse 25, Paul explains the nuts and bolts of just how it is that the gospel, as stated in verse 24, is able to do what it claims it does. In other words, Paul asserts that a person is made righteous by God's free gift of grace, not by any kind of work or, or deed. But especially a Jew who is steeped in Judaism is going to look pretty skeptically at that assertion for a couple of reasons. First of all, because it was standard Jewish doctrine of Paul's day, that simply being Jewish was sufficient for God to see a Jew as righteous. And that by doing the law, one maintained their status as a Jew and therefore maintained their position of righteousness before God. Now, I'm sorry to keep repeating myself, but it's necessary. See, when Jews insisted that they were doing the law, they did not specifically mean that they were doing the law of Moses. They meant that they were doing Jewish law, tradition, halakha. The religious philosophy of Judaism was and still is that halakha is essentially doing the law of Moses. Because halakha um, was the rabbinical interpretations of the law of Moses which included a long list of subsequent rabbinical rulings about required behaviors and, and rituals that were derived from those interpretations. <clears throat> but were the rank-and-file Jews consulting the Torah, the Law of Moses, on religious matters? No, they were not. They were following the Holocaust, the, the, the many traditions that the Pharisee synagogue teachers said they should be following. Thus, there was no longer a clear line between Holy Scripture, Law of Moses, versus traditions of the rabbis. 
Now the second reason the Jews were skeptical of Paul's assertion of salvation as a free gift of grace for all who believe in Messiah is because they did not see a Messiah as having any direct involvement in their spiritual relationship with God. For them a Messiah was merely a real physical descendant of King David who would militarily lead the Jews out of being oppressed by Rome and then into a golden era of Israel becoming the dominant worldwide kingdom. What we ought to be furrowing our brows about is that Paul, at least in his own mind, has decided that it's necessary to lecture these Jewish and Gentile believers of the city of Rome about these faith principles. Because clearly he is skeptical that they've been taught the gospel correctly or that they've been taught the proper doctrines to live their lives by. Paul has not decided to write an extensive theology of Christianity and then randomly set it off to Rome. He is responding to what he thinks are certain pressing issues within the believing congregations of Rome. I'm talking about the city of Rome, not all of the Roman Empire. And as the Christ-designated apostle to the Gentiles, Paul also believes that it's not only his duty to set down the doctrines of the faith of Messiah, but that he also has the authority to do so. So by way of explanation as to just how it is that God offers salvation as a free gift to everyone who puts trust in Messiah Yeshua, he says in verse 25 that God, meaning the Father, put forth Yeshua as the sacrifice for sin. Therefore, as a sacrifice, and Paul has in mind an altar sacrifice, not something theoretical or allegorical, the blood of Yeshua meets the Torah requirement of innocent blood being shed for the sake of the guilty. Now let's pause for a moment. The the Greek word... Hilasterion, Hilasterion, is what is being variously translated into English Bibles as propitiation or sacrifice of atonement or expiation. What is interesting is that this the Greek in the Greek Old Testament, the Greek Old Testament, Hilasterion is used to translate the Hebrew word kapara. And kapara, guess what that means? It means mercy seat. The lid on the Ark of the Covenant. So the proper, literal, English translation is God put Yeshua forward as the mercy seat. That is, the mercy seat is the place where atonement is made by the high priest once per year for all Israel. Now God has put forth Yeshua as that mercy seat, as the place where atonement must be made, not allegorically, but actually. Now I'd like to note that in Paul's day, And since the Jews returned from Babylon, there was no ark. There was no mercy seat in the Holy of Holies. It had been taken to Babylon by Nebuchadnezzar as a spoil of war, and it was never returned. So when the high priest went into the Holy of Holies in the temple annually on Yom Kippur, He still performed this required ritual of atonement, but instead of sprinkling blood on the mercy seat, he sprinkled it onto the floor where the Ark of the Covenant used to sit. Was this efficacious for remittance of sins for Israel? Now, I can't be 100% certain, but I don't think so. 
continues by saying that this remittance of sin was the result of faith in Christ's blood. Now this passage has always created some difficulty because the usual way it is interpreted boy pay attention to these next few words the usual way it's interpreted is that it is our faith in Christ's blood that counts as our righteousness but as Joseph Shulam points out quite correctly that interpretation cannot be correct because in order to arrive at that conclusion one must alter the verb and the word order of that verse and in fact that is regularly done by Bible scholars who think it makes more sense to alter the order of the Greek words in this passage but see if we leave the word order as it stands in the original Greek that's verified by many ancient Greek manuscripts then the meaning changes from our faith to Christ's faith as the catalyst for atonement and forgiveness and this meets very well with the meaning of verse 22 that speaks of Yeshua's faithfulness to God so when properly read what this passage is saying is that atonement has been made through Yeshua's faithfulness by him allowing his blood to be the sacrifice of atonement for all who believe now I only point this out here's the kicker okay? I only point this out because too much our faith is emphasized in modern Christianity when in fact the scriptures point to Messiah's faith to his faithfulness as the primary issue his not ours and when then you see we are to just trust in his faithfulness see often this manifests in Christians constantly being concerned about how much faith we have oh if I only had more faith I just need more faith help me get more faith oh God give me more faith and thus we have this idea that a higher level of faith brings with it more favor and more rewards or there's a belief that if things didn't turn out the way we wanted them to it's because we didn't have enough faith then if only we could just muster up more faith more of what we want to happen would happen our faith will never be perfect our faith will never be sufficient to warrant our salvation therefore we are to simply trust in Messiah's perfect faith do you see the difference I mean oh how this relieves us that's liberty that's freedom now the remainder of verse 25 in its flow on into verse 26 is quite difficult it speaks of how Yeshua's sacrifice highlights God's forbearance because God passed over the sins that people had committed in the past even though he had never remitted those sins nor punished those sinners for their sins now to understand this we got to go back a few weeks when we carefully defined what is meant by God's righteousness what is the righteousness of God and we found that first of all how God's righteousness is defined is entirely different than how human righteousness is defined 
Human righteousness is defined as being right before God and by doing right before God. God's righteousness is summed up in His saving will. That is, God's righteousness is His determination to take people who are not right with Him and make them right with Him. In this instance, Paul is saying that at least for some, God passed over their past sins and postponed a punishment that they richly deserved. He didn't wink at those sins and forget them. Rather, by postponing the punishment until Yeshua came, now Yeshua's blood could atone for them once and for all. And the mere fact that God would so graciously do this just magnifies His glory all the more. So after explaining now the reason, the, why it is that Yeshua's death on the cross is the legal justification for God reaching down from heaven and righteousing those who trust in this amazing protocol of grace, Paul then asks a very simple question. In verse 27. So, folks, what room is there left for your boasting? That is clearly the sinner whose sins are atoned for first doesn't deserve forgiveness. Second, has done nothing to earn that forgiveness. And third, receives that forgiveness as a free gift. Therefore, he can't hold himself up as having worked tirelessly at being Torah observant as the reason why God chose to reach down and righteous him. His deeds don't earn him merit. They earn him condemnation if he counts on those deeds to be his righteousness. So as usual, Paul answers his own question. He says there is no room at all for boasting about one's works as the reason for God righteousing him. Since works was never the way that one received righteousness. Never, at any time in history. Rather, it is trust. It is trust that gains a person righteousness. Paul says it another way in verse 28. Obeying the law is not how one attains the righteousness that saves. Now Paul moves his case forward for Gentile inclusion into the biblical faith in verse 29. He asks the rhetorical question, <clears throat> well, is God only God of the Jews or is he God of the Gentiles too? He, of course, answers his own question. He says, yes, of course. God is the God of both Jews and Gentiles because God is one. God is Echad. Or in modern English, there's really only one God, so there can't possibly be separate gods. One for the Jews, one for the Gentiles. Really? That's kind of funny. Because plainly this contradicts another rather widespread Christian doctrine that essentially does make the claim that there are two gods. One for the Jews and one for the Gentile Christians. The one for the Jews is the God of the Old Testament. The Father. The one for the Gentiles is the God of the New Testament. The Son. And if we have two gods, necessarily we have two different loyalties for two different sets of people along with two different sets, uh, separate sets of rules. Now see, Paul tackles this question head on. He says, no. There is but one God and what he says and what he lays down is for Jews and Gentile Christians. And now in verse 30, draw a, uh, Paul draws a conclusion. 
But let me remind you that throughout this dissertation, he has been following the standard rabbinical Talmud method of making his case. He presents a question. Next, he presents the ruling that a previous rabbi made. Next, he refutes that ruling, usually by saying, heaven forbid. Then finally, he pronounces his own, what he believes to be correct ruling. Paul's arrival at a conclusion is announced by by beginning this verse, therefore. Therefore, here's my conclusion. And the conclusion and the ruling is, since there's only one God, logically meaning then that God must be God of everyone, Jews and Gentiles, then God will righteous those who are circumcised, Jews, based on their trust. Just as he will righteous those who are uncircumcised, Gentiles, also based on their trust. But now in verse 31 comes the question of the ages. Because of all the previous arguments he's made about Jews and Gentiles, and that the law, the Torah, does not save, only trust in God saves, does that mean the Torah is abolished? Because of trusting. In other words, since because of Yeshua's blood sacrifice on the cross in which we can place our trust, does this now render the law obsolete, replaced, therefore abolished? Now how might Paul answer that question? Big question. And regardless of his answer, what might he base that theology on? I think I know. And I think most of you know. As much as I enjoy using the complete Jewish Bible, on this passage I just want to use the King James Version only to demonstrate that it doesn't matter which version we use. The outcome is always the same. Okay, Listen to Matthew 5, 17-19 in the King James Version. Think not that I come to destroy the law or the prophets. I come not to destroy but to fulfill. For verily I say unto you, until heaven and earth pass, not one jot or tittle shall in no wise pass from the law until all is fulfilled. Whosoever therefore shall break one of these least commandments and shall teach men, he shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whosoever shall do and teach them the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Paul's answer then, of course, is directly connected to Yeshua's statement. And his answer to the question of of if, after all that he said regarding the equality of the gospel for, for, for Jew and Gentile and that the law does not save, does that mean the law is therefore abolished? And what does he say? Heaven forbid. I mean, let's face it. Truly, had he said otherwise, he would have been refuting his own Savior. Now let's move on now to Romans chapter 4. Move on to Romans chapter 4. <clears throat> That's at the top of the page, if you have a complete Jewish Bible, of page 1406. Romans chapter 4, starting at verse 1. Then what should we say that Avraham, our forefather, obtained by his own efforts? For if Avraham came to be considered righteous by God because of legalistic observances, then he has something to boast about. But this is not how it was before God. For what does the Tanakh say? Avraham put his trust in God, and it was credited to his account as righteousness. Now the account of someone who is working is credited not on the ground of grace, but on the ground of what is owed to him. However, in the case of one who is not working, but rather 
trusting in him who makes ungodly people righteous, his trust is credited to him as righteousness. In the same way, the blessing which David pronounces is on those whom God credits with righteousness apart from legalistic observances. Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered over. Blessed is the man whose sin Adonai will not reckon against his account. Now is this blessing for the circumcised only? Or is it also for the uncircumcised? For we say that Avraham's trust was credited to his account as righteousness. But what state was he in when it was so credited? Circumcision or uncircumcision? Not in circumcision, but in uncircumcision. In fact, he received circumcision as a sign, a seal of the righteousness he had been credited with on the ground of the trust he had while he was still uncircumcised. This happened so that he could be the father of every uncircumcised person who trusts and thus has righteousness credited to him. And at the same time, be the father of every circumcised person who not only has had a Brit Milah, but also follows in the footsteps of the trust which Avraham Avenu had when he was still uncircumcised. For the promise to Avraham and his seed that he would inherit the world did not come through legalism, but through the righteousness that trust produces. For if the heirs are produced by legalism, then trust is pointless. The promise is worthless. For what law brings is punishment, but where there is no law, there is also no violation. The reason the promise is based on trusting is so it may come as God's free gift. A promise that can be relied on by all the seed, not only those who live within the framework of the Torah, but also those with the kind of trust that Avraham had. Avraham Avenu for all of us. This accords with the Tanakh, the Old Testament, where it says, I have appointed you to be the father to many nations. Avraham is our father in God's sight because he trusted God as the one who gives life to the dead and calls non-existent things into existence. For he was past hope, yet in hope he trusted that he would indeed become a father to many nations in keeping with what he had been told, so many will your seed be. His trust did not waver when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered that Sarah's womb was dead too. He did not, by lack of trust, decide against God's promise. On the contrary, by trust he was given power as he gave glory to God, for he was fully convinced that what God had promised he could also accomplish. That is why it was credited to his account as righteousness. But the words, it was credited to his account, were not written for him only. They were written also for us, who will certainly have our accounts credited too, because we have trusted in him who raised Yeshua our Lord from the dead. Yeshua who was delivered over to death because of our offenses. And he was raised to life in order to make us righteous. In Jewish terms, Romans chapter 4 is essentially a midrash. It's an interpretive discussion of Genesis 15.6. That's what it's all about. And there in Genesis 15:6 we read, He, Avraham, believed in Adonai, and he, God, credited it to him as righteousness. So Paul is going to justify his assertion 
that trusting faithfulness is what actually confirms the law of Moses, doesn't abolish it, by citing Abraham. And he begins by addressing a standard premise of Judaism that clearly existed then, and it exists to this day, that is called skut avot. Skut avot. The merits of the fathers. The merits of the fathers. Skut avot. Now this was a belief that was part and parcel with the concept that Jewishness itself guaranteed righteousness before God. However, it peeled that onion back another layer by claiming Jewish righteousness on the basis of the righteousness of their ancestors, of the fathers. Now the key words of verse 1 are, by his own efforts. In other words, the Jews believed that Abraham was righteous on account of his deeds and that Abraham's righteousness had a great deal to do with their own righteousness. Now first let me comment. (laughs) It's sadly fascinating that Abraham is all but disconnected from modern Christianity. All but disconnected. Even though Paul has appealed to Abraham on more than one occasion to prove not only the efficacy of the gospel, but also of the law. Abraham is seen by the church today as more connected to Judaism and even to Islam. And yet here in the New Testament, Paul shows us that the plan of redemption we all count on is directly connected to Abraham. But even more, if Paul can prove to his readers that if Abraham had no claim to glory because he did not receive his righteousness through his deeds, then neither can anyone else claim glory from their own deeds, from our own deeds. Next, Paul says that if Abraham was righteous by God, justified by God because of his works, well, then he certainly would have something to brag about. But that's not what happened. Rather, Abraham put his trust in God, and God credited this trust as Abraham's righteousness. The point Paul is making is that the law didn't yet exist in Abraham's day, and it wouldn't for another six centuries. So it can't be by works of the law that God saw Abraham as righteous. Rather, if any work was involved, the work was merely that of trusting. In in Second Temple Judaism, It was indeed believed that Abraham was righteous before God on the ground of his deeds. In the book of Jubilees, which was written sometime in the 2nd century BC, it says this, Abraham was perfect in all of his deeds with the Lord and well-pleasing in righteousness all the days of his life. So Paul was disagreeing with the standard Jewish beliefs of his day. He says in verse 3, but see, but this is not how it is before God. He's directly refuting it. This is not how it is before God. Meaning Abraham did not establish his righteousness before God through his works and his deeds. Instead, Paul quotes Genesis 15.6 as how Abraham came by his righteousness. And it was simply credited to him by God on account of Abraham's trust. So to explain now how it was that Abraham was credited with righteousness, Paul provides a simple analogy. He says that a person who works for a wage doesn't receive his pay because of a favor. He doesn't receive his pay as a gift. 
not an act of grace by his overseer. He's earned it by his own hard labor. The reward is due him. So, that worker can rightfully glory in it. On the other hand, if a person does not work, but rather merely trusts in God to make people who are not godly into people who are righteous, well, then that person has earned nothing. So nothing's owed. The trust they have in God is simply imputed to them by God as righteousness. What that person received, righteousness, was not owed to him. It was given as a favor, as a gift. Well, in verse 6, Paul drags out King David into the picture to use what he had to say as yet another proof that works and deeds are not what makes a person righteous before God. In fact, Paul is using Psalm 32 to properly interpret Genesis 15.6. Only the first two verses are actually quoted by Paul. But it was a rabbinic principle that only quoting part of a passage indicated that all of that scripture passage was to be referred to and thus just kind of read into the discussion. So let's hear what David had to say about the source of righteousness, including for those like himself who were Jews, and they had the law. And we're going to do that by reading all of the rather short Psalm 32. Psalm 32 by David Amaskil. How blessed are those whose offense is forgiven, those whose sin is covered. How blessed those to whom Adonai imputes no guilt, in whose spirit is no deceit. When I keep silent, my bones wasted away because of my groaning all day long. Day and night your hand was heavy on me. The sap in me dried up as in a summer drought. When I, can, when I acknowledge my sin to you, when I stopped concealing my guilt and said, I will confess my offenses to Adonai, then you, you forgave the guilt of my sin. This is what everyone faithful should pray at a time when you can be found. Then when the floodwaters are raging, they will not reach to him. You are a hiding place for me. You will keep me from distress. You will surround me with songs of deliverance. I will instruct and teach you in this way that you are to go. I will give you counsel. My eyes will be watching you. Don't be like a horse or a mule that has no understanding. That has to be curbed with a bitten bridle or else it won't come near you. Many are the torments of the wicked. But grace surrounds those who trust in Adonai. Be glad in Adonai. Rejoice, you righteous. Shout for joy, all you upright in heart. So Paul uses this psalm of David to make a key point. God forgives and gives righteousness to those who have sinned. And yet... People who have sinned do not deserve that forgiveness. However, in verse 2, God imputes or he reckons, depending on your Bible version, no guilt to the sinner. Thus, righteousness could in turn be given to that sinner who God now no longer sees as a sinner. Well, the verse 8 instruction about the way you are to go is referring to the law of Moses, the Torah. But notice, this is not associated, uh, this is key, this is not associated with how one becomes righteous. Going the way one is to go and receiving righteousness are two different things. Going the way one is to go does not cause righteousness. But, 
receiving righteousness does open a person's heart to God's instructions, to his wise counsel as found in the law, so that he can go the way one is to go. It's a cause and effect. Verse 10 of Psalm 32 is something we should carefully note. It says that grace surrounds those who trust in God. Now please notice something. David lived a thousand years before Christ. And yet, what's he appealing to? Grace. I've said it before, but it bears repeating. Grace is not a New Testament innovation. Christ did not open the era of grace. Grace is an Old Testament principle naturally brought forward into the New Testament era. Grace is more than a principle, you see. Grace is an attribute of God. In fact, the Levitical sacrificial system was grace in action because God decided He would accept the blood of sinless animals to pay for the sins of guilty humans who owed Him the debt of their own blood. That's grace. Grace versus law, as it's often framed in Christianity, is an oxymoron. The law was grace. Because God gave Israel a way to atone for the trespasses and to return to peace with Him, which didn't involve the human trespasser losing their own life. Nor did it involve them earning their way back into God's good graces. So we, all of us, need to be ambassadors to the church in general to help them to understand the goodness of God and the history of true grace that extends back to the beginning of humankind on earth. Well, back to Romans chapter 4 and verse 9, Paul asks his straw man yet another question. Now, is this blessing that David was speaking of in his psalm for the circumcised only. Can only Jews expect such a blessing of unmerited grace or does this extend to the uncircumcised, to Gentiles? I mean, I can't even imagine the can of worms that Paul's just opened. This would have caused fury among many of the believing Jews in Rome who read this letter. But Paul is undaunted. And he continues with this, his line of reasoning by pointing out the unthinkable. Abraham was righteous by God before he was circumcised. In other words, before he was officially a Hebrew, while still a Gentile, he was given righteousness because he trusted God. His righteousness did not come because of circumcision. In fact, the biblical timeline and its Hebrew tradition, he was not circumcised until 29 years had passed since the event of Genesis 15.6. So Paul has just annihilated the standard Jewish argument that fleshly circumcision was the requirement for Jews to have their decided advantage over Gentiles and to obtain righteousness because as Paul said near the end of, of Romans chapter 2 true circumcision is of the heart it is spiritual and not literal so that his praise comes not from other people but from God but it also proves something that he has been arguing since Romans chapter 1 since Abraham received his righteousness from God long before the law existed, then it cannot be that the law is the vehicle to receive righteousness. Can't be. Even more it is that circumcision was not given as a sign of Jewishness. 
It was given as a sign and seal that one has a trusting faithfulness in God. That's what he says here. It's not my words, it's his. I want to add something that people who have been following Torah class for many years already know. It is that not only did the way for receiving righteousness get revealed through Abraham, but it is that deliverance, salvation if you would, came upon Israel. They were delivered and redeemed from Egypt before they received the law. Before they ever arrived at Mount Sinai. And this redemption happened with utterly no deeds or merits on their part. It happened purely by God's grace. He and he alone fought Egypt through supernatural plagues forcing Egypt to release God's people. So here we have further proof that doing the law is only something for people who've already been redeemed. It's not a means of redemption. And yet to Paul, as he says over and over, the law's not dead and gone, nailed to the cross. It continues in full force. And that is because its purpose is especially important to believers. It is needed to show us what pleases God and what sin is. Listen to 1 John. Listen to John in 1 John 3, 4. Again, we'll use the King James Version. Whosoever committeth sin transgresseth also the law. For sin is transgression of the law. That's John's words. For the apostles Paul and John, long after Christ was crucified and arose, the law remained the standard. The law remains the manual for living the redeemed life that God gave to us all as a free gift of grace. Or as Paul says, there's only one law because there's only one true God. Is he not the God of both Jews and Gentiles? Thus, in Romans 4.11, Paul says that God righteous Abraham before he was circumcised so that Abraham could be counted as the father of the uncircumcised as well as the circumcised. <laughs> Fighting words to be true All right, to the Jews of Rome. I did not like this. But Paul's use of Holy Scripture and his logic is impeccable. Good luck fighting that. You probably have had enough to think about for one day. So we'll conclude Romans chapter 4 next week.